Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the House That Higgy Built podcast. As always, I am your host, Jackson Frank, uh, and per usual, I am hosting this on Spotify Greenroom. Uh, we have concluded the report card section of uh, this year's Sixers players, uh, wrapped it up on Thursday with Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons, uh, and the plan today is to start shifting to some draft coverage. Um, obviously in the past I've done some significant NBA draft coverage, but it's not been my forte this year. Um, so for the next couple weeks, I am going to bring on various guests to talk about potential Sixers fits at the 28th and 50th, 50th overall pick, uh, to kick things off today, bring on Henry Ward. Uh, Henry is one of my favorite people to talk about basketball in the draft with. So look, give us a great perspective. We're going to talk about Jared Butler and Joel Ayayi for the 28th pick and then Austin Reeves and Joe Wieskamp for the 50th pick. So We'll go through a lot of things, simple breakdowns of their games, but also try and get uh, more specific about why Henry thinks they might fit well on the Sixers. And we'll kind of go back and forth, and they'll give me some, maybe talk, ask me some questions about why, uh, why or how they could fit as well. So uh, Henry is here, and we'll get going uh, pretty soon. Hey, Henry, how are you doing today? Can we hear you, Henry? I, I don't know if anyone else can hear Henry, but I cannot. Now I can. Can I hear you? Can you hear me? Yep, there you go. Can you hear me? Okay. Yep, we're all good. Awesome. How you doing Perfect. today? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm excited to talk some uh, some Sixers fits. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I'm doing well, too. It's a beautiful day here in Portland. Uh, just just enjoying things, and uh, we got a great NBA Finals game tonight, so uh, excited to big day of basketball in, in varying coverages, but or varying ways, but um, first, we'll, we'll start off with we'll start off with the 28th pick, of course, which is what the Sixers hold. Uh, a couple of guys that you suggest you think might be there for them at 28 that you like as fits are Joel Yai and Jared Butler. Um, can you just give us, you know, kind of for the general listener, a, a breakdown of of each of their games and kind of what draws you to them as prospects, and and then we'll get into more of the nitty gritty about how they might fit on both sides of the ball for the Sixers if they were to to fall or land land to Philadelphia at 28. Yeah, gladly. Um, so I'll just start with Butler. Um, I guess maybe should preface with the uh, the fact that he was uh, at the combine red flagged for a heart condition that also red flagged him coming to college. Um, obviously, he was allowed to play at Baylor, um, but unfortunately, this wouldn't be the first time that someone made their medicals at Baylor and then was prevented from mm-hmm. playing in the NBA for the same issues. Um, so hoping, obviously above all, that he is A, healthy, and then B, able to, to play in the NBA. I'm not sure how the process looks for him in terms of, of interviewing and stuff right now. It's possible that behind the scenes he's been either greenlit or completely red flagged. We don't really know publicly. Um, it seems like he's interviewing with teams, so mm-hmm. it, it's not a complete, like, ax yet, which is which is great news. Um, but, yeah, moving beyond that, just from the player that Butler is um, or that he showed at Baylor, I'm – I'm a big fan of his, not quite as big a fan as um, our pal Jake Rosen is, but (laughs) I think that um, he has a lot of really intriguing traits that make him uniquely scalable on a team like the Sixers, but also just any of those teams picking, um, I shouldn't say any of those teams, but many of those teams that are going to be picking in the late 20s because he is um, very capable on the ball, really shifty handle, um, Takes a while to generate advantages sometimes if he's working from a standstill, but is mm-hmm. is shifty enough to, to create some windows for himself. Um, but I think what separates him from uh, some guys in this class who are you know sort of in the same theoretical mold as sort of lead guard, uh, smaller lead guard, sort of offensive first initiators, um, is he's really really good off the ball. Um, mm-hmm. 
terrific off-screen footwork um, as a shooter. Um, very comfortable attacking downhill when kind of moving off the catch. Um, and I think a lot of his best moments come when he is attacking off screens, whether that be in ball screens or um, kind of getting the ball in sort of like Chicago-ish, Miami-ish action, actions where he's um, receiving the ball on the move and then flying off screens. Um, very lethal in those situations with his ability to sort of create windows, whether it be snaking those those actions or um, attacking downhill and getting bigs in trouble. Um, very, very good. And like I sort of alluded to, a very good shooter, both uh, off the dribble and, and coming off screens. And then defensively, uh, suffers a bit from just his size and physical limitations, but pretty good. Like, I would say that he's generally a positive defender in college and projects to be, I think, a neutral one um, at the very least in the NBA. Like I said, he's not going to be you know guarding multiple positions, but in terms of guarding uh, like-sized guys, he's, he's very good at staying in front of people. Um, pretty shifty in screens, not elite in that sense. Like I think there's some guys who really just like Jaden Springer comes to mind. It's like screens don't mean anything to them. He's not in that tier, but decent enough at getting around ball screens um, and guarding the ball. And then um, the brief rundown on a Yai, I would say the, the peak selling point for him is his awful activity um, offensively. Mm-hmm. Just such a smart player and amazing cutter. Um, works so well in that Gonzaga offense just in terms of his ability to to capitalize on those windows created by basically three guys who held insane gravity and and Suggs, Kispert, and Timmy. Um, Mm -hmm. And just so good at finding those little windows. And not only finding those windows, but making really smart decisions when he got the ball in those windows. Like, he was a good finisher on the rim on both sides. Um, Very comfortable, like, making touch passes in and around the paint, which I think is – an underrated skill of his just because that is difficult to do is to make those quick reads in small spaces. He's, he's very good at that. And I think that's part of why uh, he might have some, some slightly untapped self-creation potential in terms of uh, pick and roll handling and um, maybe operating a bit more from a standstill, not a great advantage creator, just in a vacuum. He's not really turning corners on guys from uh, with his burst or this handle, um, but when he gets to the ball on the move, he's he's very good. And I would I should mention that he does do a very good job, which is a kind of a micro skill I really love to see in guys, is he makes himself catch the ball on the move. Like he if he if mm-hmm. he's standing still and the ball is getting past him, he will charge into the catch, which allows him to create those advantages. Um, which is something that's super easy to do, but just not a lot of guys think about executing mm-hmm. such a thing. And it, it works for him. It's kind of a, a way he can tilt defenses without ever having to do it himself from a standstill, um, even in an, in an advantageous situation. So, and then defensively, um, slithery, very smart. I don't think he's he's got some length. He's not overly long. He, I think he's around six four ish. I don't remember what he measured at the combine. Um, he didn't. Think he he didn't. I don't think he measured at the combine. I think there was reports that he feels comfortable with his uh, with his standing. In. But I know I know a few years ago, Mike Schmidt had a measurement on at Draft Express. It was like six three and a half. That was like twenty seventeen. It's a long time ago, but. I think six four or so is probably about right. Sorry to cut you off, but I just I remember he did. I don't think he was at the combine. Right. Yeah. No. I appreciate you cutting me off because you're absolutely right. <laughs> he was not at the combine. Um. And yeah. So six three and a half sounds about right. I would. I wouldn't bet on him being much taller than that. But just I think he's not going to be. Uh. Like I said, like Butler, not going to be like really multi-positional. Can probably guard your classic sort of off-guard types, but he's also not the type of player you want to be like sticking on your. 
uh, opponent's best player who's just kind of best in an ancillary role. He's not going to get targeted, which I think is a big plus if, if you're drafting mm-hmm. a guy for his offensive um, potential at the 28th pick. Like if you can get a guy who's positive offensive player and just not getting targeted defensively there, I think that's a, that's a big win. Um, so yeah, not a ton in terms of value addition, but uh, won't get, like I said, won't get targeted and should make some things happen off the ball just with his, his spatial reasoning and, and kind of uh, level of activity. Yeah, I, I like the point you made about AIE's kind of ability to make quick decisions in small windows in the paint because obviously that's something that put the benefit the Sixers because they have currently they have three guys who like to score somewhere in the paint with Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, and Tobias Harris, and so if AIE's cutting, you know, making things happen off the ball, it's a nice skill to have. But I want to circle back to Butler here um, because you mentioned some of the shooting, and I remember like I obviously I watched a lot of them last year. Uh, I did write a scouting report, so if anyone wants to find that, it's on my Patreon somewhere. If anyone's listening, you can go find that. Probably a little outdated because Butler did, if I if I correct, made some big strides as a passer and defender this year, but still a general outline of maybe what he could bring in some ways there. If you want to read that on my Patreon, which is linked in my Twitter. Um, but you mentioned the shooting, and I think one thing he does really well is he's really good at setting up screens, great footwork. Um, how how Where do you land on kind of what type of shooter you project him to be? Because... I think a lot of people will look and say, oh, yeah, he shot shot 41.6% from three this year on high volume, 38% last year, 35% as a freshman. So 38% across three years, like, it's very good, but it's not it's not great. So what, what – and that's not for me to say that I don't buy him as a very good shooter. I think there's a lot of things he does well. But for someone who's maybe a little more skeptical, just looking at the raw numbers there from three-point range, what does it – where do you kind of see him landing as a shooter? And what are maybe – if you do – you are kind of on the high end of his outcome there – what makes you so kind of optimistic about him becoming a guy who could be a really good off movement shooter who hovers around that 39 to 40% range. Maybe you don't feel that way, but what, where just, where do you land on kind of his shooting projection um, in terms of actual statistics? So the process has been really good from what I've seen the last couple of years, but the numbers overall are, are good, but not great. So what do you say to maybe people that are a little more skeptical of, of that part? Yeah, I think um, we're probably going to touch on this a bit more when it comes to um, when we talk about Austin Reeves, um, later in the podcast but I think the I think this year is maybe the most representative sample just in terms of the playmaking jump and an on-ball equity jump that Davion Mitchell took like I think that Butler is not going to be um, if you're drafting Jared Butler to be uh, sort of your you know microwave bench scoring lead guard who's running a bunch of pick and rolls and creating advantages once he's bringing the ball up and basically kind of being the engine of your second unit, which I think is how some people will view him. I think that's fair to worry about the efficiency in terms of how that translates. But in my view, the way you extract the most value out of him and why he's especially valuable on a team like the Sixers is because of that versatility we talked about, his ability to scale on and off the ball. And he did that more this year with the um, the playmaking and, and, like I said, the on-ball equity jump that Davion Mitchell took. So, and that way, I see his role at the next level looking most like his role this year, where he is flying off flare screens, floppy actions. I mean, mm-hmm. no one runs floppy actions in the NBA anymore, but like things like that where he is um, not only operating and finding his own shot with the ball in his hands, but doing a very good job um, either off relocations or designed actions, um, getting the ball on the move on the perimeter and basically creating catch and shoot catch and shoot situations for himself. I think that's probably how you get the most value out of him. And so I think they're uh, just using that this year as a proxy for that. Um, 
the the efficiency and the diet of shots looks the most similar. Um, I don't have a synergy page up in front of me, but I'd be curious to see his discrepancy between um, his like percentage of possessions spent moving off screens versus his percentage of possessions as a PNR ball handler across the last two years. But I'd imagine that the off screen percentages went up this year and the ball handler percentages went down. Um, even if you know, only minutely. Uh, but in terms of, in terms of that next, that next step for him and where he fits best, it is like a, it's next to a guy like Ben Simmons, who's um, taking the majority of the sort of the initiation reps and um, Butler is more of a, a spacer secondary creator than kind of an actual point guard. Yeah, that makes sense. So I guess maybe kind of the synopsis would be that you think this year's numbers are most reflective of, of maybe his ability in, in that shooting role because it was, it was the kind of his optimized role as kind of a, a second, I don't want to say second, but like a, a handler who more toggles between on and off the ball rather than, than driving so many possessions as an on ball creator, which is what he was asked to do a lot, a lot in previous years. Exactly. That's, that's very okay. well put. Um, and just looking at synergy numbers here to quantify, um, Honestly, pretty similar between the last two years. And as a sophomore, 2019-20, uh, 27.9% of his uh, usage was pick-and-roll ball handler and 8.6% with screens. Um, this past year, 27.9% again in pick-and-rolls and 6.1% in screens. Um, but I think his spot-up numbers went up a little bit. Yeah, 24% on spot-ups versus 22.1% last year. Um, graded out very well on spot-ups and off-screens the last couple of years. Um, so clearly, I th- and I think if you like for anyone listening to this, whether it's live or if you just go watch 15 shots of Jared Butler off the ball, you'll really kind of see why he does look to be such a good shooter because his footwork is great and the way he sets up screens is really awesome. I wouldn't say like he's not I don't know, to me, it's not quite the same level as a guy like Desmond Bain, but very similar and their footwork is great and they both really read the defense as well. And so you can see why people like Butler is a really high level shooter, despite the numbers not overall being they're not like a, he's not like a 42% guy across three years or anything. So, um, but sticking with Butler, I'm, I'm curious, you know, something the Sixers run a lot of with, with Joel Embiid when he's not, you know, running, you know, he's not in the mid post or things like that. Is they love to run DHOs. They ran a lot of that with Seth Curry, JJ Redick in previous years. Um, so for both the Yai and Butler, what do you make of kind of their functionality in DHOs? What kind of feel do you have for that with their fit there? What's kind of their tendencies and, and whatnot? How do you how do you think they could project in maybe a two man game with Embiid? Because that's something that I think that's these guards who are a little bit limited as creators that come to the Sixers, which they've had a, they had plenty of limited create guard creators during the Joel Embiid era. They can mm-hmm. really kind of fashion a little more you know creation if they're good in DHOs because Embiid just garners so much so much attention and, and is such a large human that when he does really kind of focus on setting consistent screens, he can make things really tough for the defenses there. Yeah, I mean, Ayayi ran a ton of DHOs this past year, um, and he's very good in it, kind of for that same reason we were talking about earlier and his sort of proactivity and setting, uh, creating advantages for himself off the catch. Um, like, he sprints into those things, and he's always turning a corner, and that's kind of a great way, I think, to actually optimize him is to put him in DHOs with a guy like Joel, um, because you're going to be sort of leveraging Joel's gravity to create a little bit bigger windows for Ayayi than maybe he'd be able to create for himself. Um, and then out of those situations has that sort of tight space interior to interior and interior to exterior uh, passing that is obviously coveted when you're getting downhill in those types of actions. Um, I think Butler is an interesting case because I don't know how many DHOs he really ran, but I think you can sort of extrapolate 
the skills he shows in, in pick and rolls. Um, like Butler's exceptionally good at putting guards in jail and also um, snaking pick and rolls to create space for rollers. I think that obviously bodes extremely well for playing in actions with Joel Embiid um, because you have two guys who basically, you know, in Butler's case is very good at, at creating space where there is none and in Embiid's space, in Embiid's case, just absorbing a ton of space by the nature of being giant and good at basketball. Um, so that's an interesting pair because I think that you have a guy in Butler who can score at three levels, whether it be sort of, you know, I think Korkmaz in, in the games I've watched, you've obviously watched far more Sixers basketball than I have, but it feels like a guy like, like Korkmaz or Redick are very comfortable um, flying into DHOs and then uh, sort of settling when, when guys go under to kind of force up tough threes right behind the, the point of the, the handoff. Whereas mm-hmm. a guy like Butler is much better at um, treating it more as like a, a quote unquote ball screen type action where he's putting the ball on the floor and manipulating space to, to sort of benefit both him and the role man. Um, and a guy in the same way and sort of their, both their very similar ability to, to probe once again, the pain with a live dribble um, and make decisions out of that. I think they're both uniquely suited. Um, and honestly, that's a big reason both of them came to mind uh, as potential Sixers fits is because they are both so good at playing um, in space with the ball on the floor uh, in those sort of secondary-ish actions. Uh, and obviously that bodes extremely well for a team with, you know, one of the most offensively potent centers ever. So I like that. I like that point a lot um, in terms of how they'd be able to fit with a guy like Joel. Yeah, for sure. I, I just asked, because I think that's a really important thing. And if like, because you're not going to get anyone at 28 that is going to, you know, I guess ease really ease the burden for, for Joel. Like I think he led the league in usage rate this year. I talked about on the previous podcast, so it's a little unsustainable. Um, but I think it's important because you're not going to get that guy at 28. who's really going to, deviate away from that usage but if you could find a guy who really does compliment Joel well that that would help and um you mentioned kind of you know a yeah it's it's funny we like now we're there's two Joels on this on this on this podcast now with, with the <laughs> I didn't even realize uh and I yeah I, I talked about Joel yeah with Daniel Olinger last week and we were talking about the same thing I got all tongue-tied but anyhow you mentioned we'll use the last name we'll go yeah and MB here um <laughs> we, you mentioned with a yeah being able to like he really gets kind of he, he turns the corner he's always kind of on the move with stuff and his productivity um, and that's something I don't want the Sixers to really have like a downhill DHO threat besides Jimmy Butler for, you know, three quarters of a season back when they acquired him uh, in 2018-19. Like, they've never really had a DHO partner who can do that. You know, Seth Curry is a guy who really found some rhythm with Embiid, especially in the playoffs, but he's more of either shoot the three or get a one, two, one or two dribble pull up to the, you know, 20-foot to 15-foot range. Reddick obviously is, obviously is mainly just, I'm going to sprint into this and drain threes because I have ridiculous balance and ability to score my body, but I'm not going to, like, Reddick going to the rim is kind of one of the funniest things to watch late in his career because he just kind of <laughs> flicks the ball at the rim. Um, but I, I'm, I'm curious with Ayayi because I think two of his – two of the things that I'm really wondering about for his NBA projection is, like, how does he – how can he still work in tight spaces with the ball in his hand despite having a little bit of a slender frame and also not a super advanced handle? Um, at least that's in my read of it. What – where do you – how do you think he can kind of compensate for those things and still get downhill to – make sure his kind of interior passing that you've highlighted here is a really useful tool and also like get to that floater that I think he has. Like, I don't know if he's used it a ton, but I think he has a pretty nice floater if he has to use it. Um, and so how do you, how do you think he'll be able to still kind of turn the corner despite having a little bit of a limited handle and, and frame that can maybe be dislodged by, by strength and contact from the defense? Yeah, I think the floater will be a big thing for him, obviously. And I think, um, 
maybe this isn't sort of uh, as much of a positive as it is just not a negative, but Ayayi um, has a bunch of sort of like a comical level of possessions last year, which it, I mean, it's a good skill, but it's just funny to watch. Like he will go, he'll get downhill in situations. And if he's not comfortable with like a pretty open window for finishes, he'll maintain his dribble, which is, you know, better than the alternative, but it just leads to a lot of possessions where Ayayi will like touch the restricted area with a live dribble and then end up in the corner with the same live dribble. Um, Mm -hmm. Like he's very comfortable dribbling it out, which is good because it's a great way to maintain a possession and it doesn't kill anything. It doesn't put you in a tough spot, but bad because he's pretty averse to like challenging situations around the rim for his own windows. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, that's a great point you bring up in terms of the actual scalability of the, of the skills he shows in those DHOs. It's like, Oh, well, if he's not, you know, comfortable finishing through contact or finishing in tight spaces, then sort of what is the value he's bringing? Like that, that's a good question to ask. Um, I, like I said, I do think it's fair to expect some level of, uh, like I think something that maybe goes a little bit understated with guys in college is like they're all pretty skinny. Um, a lot of them are pretty skinny, and like skinny guys just don't like getting hit very much. Um, when you grow up skinny and you're playing basketball for a long mm-hmm. time, and you're always skinny, like you kind of just get used to not trying to meet people at the rim because you just you get tossed on the floor a lot. Um, and guys in the NBA get, and they get stronger and they go through practices where they're playing uh, giant guys. And there's not a lot of cost of getting thrown on the floor as much anymore. Cause you put on, you know, 10, 15 pounds. Uh, things become easier just in terms of like at least challenging rim gravity. I don't know if like efficiency will look great always, um, but there's at least progression to be made in, some level uh, of attention required that those drives maybe don't have for a guy if he's comfortable just dribbling everyone out. Um, so it's a good question, question you raise. I think there's fixes to it. I don't know if those fixes, you know, like some guys add weight and don't have that mentality. Um, so it's, it's to be determined with him, but that would be, I think, you know, you mentioned swing skills, like that would be an important swing skill to, to track and an interesting sort of micro swing skill to track even is like, how does a guy view his, responsibility in DHOs getting downhill is it always going to be a pass if it's open or a dribble out or is it sort of a more of a pick and roll type of approach where he is viewing himself getting to the rim as the first option with with the passing to uh to a roller being the the second that's a big change for him so we'll see yeah and I think I think to his credit as well from my vantage point uh he does a good job like if defenses go under screens or your dribble handoff he's pretty good about letting letting his jumper go he has a little bit of a slow release at times but I think if if he can get, if he can become a legit kind of dribble drive guy off of those type of handoff actions or side pick and rolls, like, and teams want to stop that, he is pretty good about beating defenses there. But yeah, that that is kind of a good segue into the the swing skills point because that's you know people because obviously for anyone listening, like I, I went to Gonzaga, I, I covered EIE for a couple of years. Obviously, I watched in this past year as just an alumni, um, and so I'm, I'm when I, if I sound like I'm fluent about EIE's game more than anyone else that we're going to talk <laughs> about this podcast, it's because I am. Um, but that's just one of them. People ask me about it. Yeah, that's kind of my swing skill for him is how much how much value can you actually offer in kind of second side or like on ball creation type type plays rather than to the spot ups and the cutting, which I think he's going to be quite good at. But um, for the Sixers, they need more than just guys who can cut and space off the ball. So that, that's where I, I am curious about. But I had one more thing I wanted to ask about a I think. Oh man. It's, it's, I wrote it down, but for some reason I didn't write it down very well. It's another question. It's, it's uh, avoid, escaping me. Um, <laughs> but we can – what was it now? It's really – I thought – I liked the question, too. It's bugging me. My goodness. I, if it comes back to me, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll make sure. But anyhow, um, the, the thing that I'm curious about is 
so what, what I think the Sixers really need in terms of like how they improve, because the defense was, was great all year. Even when they, even when they lost the Hawks, their defense was awesome. It was the, the offense that was middling the regular season and was downright putrid in the second half of the Hawks series. And what I think they need is more people who create advantages, better half court passers. I think, you know, Ben Simmons is a, a incredible transition playmaker and can do some things in the half court as a post hub, but he's not a guy you're really going to be breaking down defense with a live dribble and making things happen. His, his, his passing value is really depreciated in the half court and Tobias Harris took steps forward this year, t- steps forward, but he's still not a great passer. Joel also took steps forward, but he's, he's still like, he's still, he's still a little limited in some ways there. And so I think the things they need are like advantage creation and then a term that our friend P.D. Webb, who seems to just be revolutionizing the basketball lexicon, is advantage care that he's been using, um, which I think is a great one. And then also just half-court passing. Um, so how do you think – like, and then also the last part, too, is being being quick decision-makers in these roles because what the Sixers have in their two main on-ball creators are Tobias Harris and Joel Embiid, who are quite good in those roles, but they are they're methodical. They like to let things develop slowly. And so if they create an advantage and force defenses to rotate – you're probably going to have to be pretty, pretty quick, whether it's Danny Green you know, letting it fly you know, with a quick jumper or it's, it's Seth Curry one-shot fake and dribble pull-up. It's Tyrese Maxey getting to the rim, things like that. You have to be quick and decisive, I think, in the Sixers offense as an ancillary player to really make it work. So what, with all those things encapsulated that I've kind of asked in terms of decision-making, advantage creation, advantage care, half-court passing, where do you think a guy in Butler fall on those spectrums? Like, how do you comfortably feel about them in these roles where they, they're asked to make quick, decisive decisions playing off of advantages that other guys create? In this case, it would be the six, it would be Joel Embiid and Tobias Harris for the Sixers. Yeah, I think if you could mold their two mentalities in this regard into one, you'd have the perfect player. Um, just because Ayayi is so comfortable kind of playing with that pace, like sort of that, that very quick decision making in terms of, uh, you know, shoot driver pass, like he's getting the ball. And one of those three things is happening once he catches it, basically, um, which is, I think what you're hitting on, but the problem is, is he's not, uh, he's not really in terms of the shooting part and the, and the drive part, it's not always happening as much as you maybe want it to. <laughs> um, like it, anyone can just find a swing passer. Um, so that's the problem with him. And there's the plus with him and with Butler, it's obviously come flying off those screens has sort of that, as we've talked about plenty, is that prolific shooting acumen, um, you know, setting himself up to get those to get those shots. But maybe just by nature of him running so many pick and rolls, um, you know, this is something we also haven't really seen from him, like, contextually. So it's possible he has a skill and hasn't shown it. Like, it's more latent. But um, sort of he's pretty methodical himself in the way that he likes to run things. Mm-hmm. Uh he likes to put the ball on the floor a lot to create an advantage um, requires, you know, a hefty amount of dribbles to do so. And uh, once he gets in those advantages, like I said, he likes to do things like put guards in jail or drag the big out and, and things that, that require him holding the ball for a while. Um, so if you could put together sort of Butler's movement, shooting uh, willingness with a sort of, uh, passing and driving willingness, you'd have a, a great guy in that regard, but in, in their own individual cases, because obviously that's not the case there. They do each struggle with different components of that. I think um, it's interesting to think about them and sort of lineup constructions. Like I think that a guy might fit better with someone like Seth and Butler might fit better with, with someone like Tyrese um, for those reasons, because you could sort of democratize mm-hmm. that sort of 
uh, and sort of impact in terms of deciding who's getting the ball where um, and sort of what expectations you have for the decisions to be made out of that. Um, with Ayayi sort of hopefully creating more of the, the downhill um, gravity passing and, and Butler creating more of the just the pure shooting. So it's tough individually. I think, you know, in a perfect world, you'd get someone like uh, some of the more prolific advantage creators. I think that just by nature, I think it's partially part of this draft and also just, you know, I think every year we see offense winning out in these playoffs, it, it makes it, you know, more coveted to get sort of these advantage creators early in the draft. And you're going to have guys like Trey Mann and Sharif Cooper who are, you know, plenty good guard advantage creators, but they're not going to be around at 28. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty, it's just, a, it's a skill that's at a premium. It's going to, it's rarely going to slide. Um, so in that sense, I think you're kind of best off getting sort of uh, bits of it with guys like Ayayi and Butler and understanding that you're not going to get the full package, but that each of them are able to provide um, a certain flavor or a certain dimension of that kind of uh, proactivity that you're looking for. Yeah, for sure. And I think you mentioned the, the off the kind of offense tends to win. to be a good team like the Bucks. The Bucks, there was all this talk about the Bucks offense being way better this year. It was different. And now we're halfway to the finals and their offense has been up and down and their defense has been incredible throughout the entire playoffs. And they would, they would be a better team if they had kind of, you know, quick, quick, quick prudent decision makers. And so I think those guys are always really key in the smaller roles. Um, but I did remember the thing I want to mention with the I is uh, it's not, I mean, it's not a huge, I don't ever want to read too much into this, but um, he has gotten a lot better over his, over his four years at Gonzaga. And he is super, super young for his class. Like it's ridiculous. He is, he is one, he is one class buying Killian Tilly. They have the exact same birthday, but he's two years younger than him to the day. Um, he's only 15 months older than Jalen Suggs. Jalen Suggs is a freshman. Joel Yai is a redshirt seat or redshirt junior. Um, <laughs> he's basically this, he's basically a year behind Corey Kispert. They're the exact same class. Um, and so I think the fact that he is kind of young, he was very young for his class, not yet, not a young prospect. Um, but I think plus, plus kind of the, the improvement he's shown and the way he's been able to handle different roles. Like I think back to his redshirt sophomore year, he had a lumber on ball creation. You know, there were times where he was, he was the one kind of commandeering pick and rolls and whatnot late in games. He, he took over late in the WCC uh, tournament game against San Francisco in 2019, 20. And that was one of the reasons he won most of the player of that, of that tournament. Um, and so I think those are some of the things that make you encouraged about AI is, is the fact that you've seen him play a bunch of different roles, different roles, get a lot better with a bunch of different skills. And he is young for his class. I know he, like he's not, he's not a, He's not an Alexei Pogashevsky in terms of like that, but um, he's really young. And uh, I mean, just I think the funniest stat is the, the Jalen Suggs one that he's 15 months older than Suggs, <laughs> yeah. and, and they're three years apart in terms of you know college eligibility. But that's the one thing I wanted to touch on that kind of came to mind again. Um, but the last point that I want to hit on for both of these guys is we've talked a lot about the offense, how they might you know how they can fit in general off in, in general NBA standpoint, and then with the Sixers, but defensively. I think the, you know, we can talk about a little bit, we talked about kind of their individual abilities on defense to an extent, but what do you think is the best kind of pick and roll defense if coverage for them to, to play? Because the Sixers typically, they'll typically play drop, but they'll, they'll, they will ice things, they'll push things. And for anyone listening, ice or push just means you want to force the ball handler away from the screen, requires really precise positioning and angling um, to make sure they can't you know, get too downhill. Um, the Sixers will do that. They'll run traditional drop. Sometimes they'll switch. Sometimes they'll hedge. Uh, but for the most part, they're running, you know, kind of standard drop drill and B. They'll play up a little higher if the opposing ball handler is a great is a great pull up shooter. But 
Um, what do you make of kind of the best ways for Butler and Ayayi to defend pick and rolls? And then along with that, how do you assess their, their screen navigation, which is obviously a, a big part of effective pick and roll defense from the point of attack? Yeah, so I think they are... Um... I think they're best suited in I, – I think they're too both too small. I, they're quality defenders at their position. I think they're both a little too small to to really expect, um, like, adequate switching. Or even – I think they're both fast enough. I would say, first off, Ayayi is a little bit more versatile than Butler is, um, both by virtue of his sort of size and speed and also just his activity level. Um, Ayayi is very comfortable, like, flying around. Uh, on both sides of the ball, which is a good thing in screen coverages um, because he's not doing so kind of unmethodically. He's doing so in, in a positive way. But, like, I feel comfortable basically sending a guy out to uh, high hedge and and knowing that he's going to get back and, and leave enough time for the big to recover. Um, I feel comfortable telling a guy to ice, knowing that he will get above the screen quick enough um, to deter that, that move middle. Um, I think also that he's very good in drop because he's um, sort of, this is kind of a fun conversation me and PD have a lot. It's sort of the responsibility. I'm pretty anti-drop just for a lot of theoretical reasons we don't have to get into now, but um, he, uh, PD likes to make fun of me for never blaming the guard for problems that drop causes. And I think that <laughs> Ayayi is an interesting case of a guard who could be pretty good in drop because he is so active and he does have some length and he is smart enough to sort of give those rear view contests and, and get himself back into the play in a way that a lot of guards in the NBA aren't willing to or can't. Um, so I say that he is probably the most versatile. I don't feel that he's like special in any one regard, but um, good enough in all of them, I would say. And then Butler, uh, Butler less so. I think he's good enough. Like I, I'm trying to picture. I think he's good enough to to play drop decently well. I think he's. Um, he gets low enough and he can slither a bit. And I think that helps him in terms of, like we said, getting back into the play. I don't think he's long enough or really um, athletic enough to, to uh, really generate a ton of rear view contests, but he's going to do like, he's not going to get killed there. Um, worry a bit more about like those sort of above the screen um, uphill coverages. Like, I think that that that's a little bit more concerning just because he's not like, like there's, I think that's a pretty high threshold for a prospect to be really good at those uphill coverages. Um, it's mm-hmm. hard to do. Like it's hard to to basically adjust your entire mirroring against a live dribble um, in a delayed situation where the ball screen is, you know, a split second away. It's just a very hard thing to do. And no discredit to Butler, I think he's actually a pretty good defender. But it's just it's a pretty high threshold you have to pass um, to be good at things like ice and to be good at, at high hedging and and all that stuff. So. Um, you could probably do it and it wouldn't look like out of place, but I don't think it's really generating a ton of positive outcomes. If you're like saying, Oh, we're reach draft Jared Butler. Cause he can, you know, he can go out and do this stuff. Like that's not, that's not the case. Um, but if you want him to just like slide in seamlessly, I think you won't, it's not like you're going to put him out there. Or you're going to have mice pick and rolls and be like, Oh my God, he can't do this. If that makes sense. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, I think that should. And the important thing with the Sixers too is a lot of. I mean, you don't want to expect these either of these guys at twenty eight to like be some some huge contributor in the playoffs, but you do have to look at a lot of things for the Sixers through a playoff viability lens. That's how I did all my report cards. I place more importance on that because Sixers are a team with an MVP level player. Their goal should be to win a title for the foreseeable future. Um, and the Sixers were a lot more versatile in terms of their pick and roll coverage in the 
in the playoffs uh, against guys like Bradley Beal and Trang. Of course, you have to be. You can't just stay with one one ideology. Um, so that, that's interesting. I just like I just think that's an important thing to you know assess with a guy's fit. Um, but before we shift to the 50th pick and talk about Austin Reeves and, and Joe Wieskamp, um, we we mentioned it a little bit, hinted at it. But what are the what are the swing skills for for a Yaiyan Butler? You think that could really you know, I don't want to say make or break because I think that's that's too you know too sweeping of a proclamation. But that you think could really really kind of influence what sort of outcome they they reach in the NBA. For Butler, I think it's definitely that decisiveness we touched on. Like if but if Butler can really become like a a scalable player off the ball, not only because of his um his footwork and shooting, but because he's like able to make rapid decisions without having to put the ball on the floor, that makes him look a lot different as a player um, at peak value. And then for Ayayi, I think both the comfortable comfortability he should have um, getting to the rim and and being around the rim, just sort of parlaying that into actually com- being comfortable uh, finishing and, and mm-hmm. challenging guys and upping his, I don't know what his free throw rate, I have his, um, let's see, his free throw rate this year, uh, 24.6, not great. Okay. Um, yeah. So just being more comfortable drawing contact being more comfortable trying to finish around length um, and, and being put on his ass occasionally, I think would be beneficial to him. Um, and then sort of doing that opens up, of course, a lot of other avenues for him to showcase the, that sort of tight space passing we discussed. So um, for both of them, I think it's just like adding that final sort of dimension of their offensive game to where they become really sort of nicely um, useful and, and scalable offensive players next to, to high gravity guys like like uh, Embiid and, and Tobias Harris, and you know, being able to space with with guys like Ben, I think is a big deal. And in that sense, I think, yeah, the rim, the rim gravity for Ayaya and the decisiveness, proactivity with Butler would both make them look a lot different. Yeah, for sure. I, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, these are two guys that have a decent read on just because they were prospects last year, and I was doing a good amount of, of draft coverage then and. Well, it should be mentioned too with Butler. He's a guy who's really young as well. He doesn't turn 21 until till late August. Um, so a couple of guys here that you've seen adapt and grow their games. Over, I mean, which is why any any guy who's not like a, a big you know a big time heralded recruit, if they, if they turn into an NBA prospect, of course they've grown their games. But two guys who are very young for their class that have really molded and adapted their game to varying team circumstances. Obviously, with the guy when when there was an influx of talent, he shifted to a bigger off ball role. And with a guy like Butler, when his co-star David Mitchell, David Mitchell showed more on-ball aptitude, he shifted to a, a role off the ball more. So all things you want to see, kind of young guys who are young for their class that have shown adaptability and growth is really important um, because you know, that's something that's tough to project sometimes. You know, it's people always harp on and rightfully so kind of the, the importance of watching players in different contexts. And I think with Butler and AI, you've been able to see different contexts without having to go to you know, obviously, you know, having to go to AAU or for IE FIBA or things like that, you know, it's been nice to see them play different contexts, but um, let's shift gears here, here to Austin Reeves and Joe Wieskamp, a couple of guys that you think could be available and good fit for the Sixers with their 50th overall pick. Um, just a brief rundown about why you like these guys um, and kind of what their skill sets uh, provide uh, in this year's class. Yeah. So I think basically around the 50th pick, you're pretty lucky to be getting a guy that's an NBA player. Um mm-hmm. So I preface with the fact that neither like the uh, the expectations for these two should be much more tempered than um, Butler and Ayayi, just in terms of, of their prospect um, their prospect outlook. I think Reeves 
the, the selling point is he is, um, I think a bit bigger than people consider. He's around six, six. Um, mm-hmm. he is, uh, a very good shooter off the dribble. Um, interesting developmental situation with him. Um, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this more, but was that Wichita state where he was kind of an off guard shot really well. Um, a lot more uh, sort of situations created for him transfers to Oklahoma where he is in a senior year, leads him to an eight seed after sort of a, a hot start and then some, some injuries and mm-hmm. problems got in the way. And I think we all remember um, as basketball fans, him sort of putting on a show to start that game against Gonzaga um, mm-hmm. much more sort of like pick and roll creation craft, um, and just very, very two different looking players from his, his freshman year to his senior year, both in terms of skill, obviously, but also in terms of role and usage. And I think that's interesting to sort of think about for what that means for his NBA projection as someone who is not going to be obviously anywhere near um, the sort of usage load that he held at Oklahoma, but um, has played both those roles. And, and what does that mean for his long term projection? I think is an interesting conversation to have. Um, we scamp is this kind of, Bigish sort of two three floor spacing sort of um, kind of like ancillary wing and I, I say that because um, or I say that sort of meaning not that he's adding a bunch of sort of unique skills at the same time but because you can put him out there and all of his like strongest points are in areas where you would hope that a player doesn't attract like for example he's a very good shooter. And if you put him out there, you're hoping that he just doesn't, you know, he at least helps space the floor, which he would. And defensively, he's uh, not great, but he's long enough and, and active enough to where he's not getting burned and he's maybe adding some some stocks here and there or rotations to deter certain actions, um, basically just maintaining a neutrality. Um, and I, I realize it's probably, uh, the way I just described Wieskamp, is a pretty underwhelming sort of pitch for a prospect. I basically just outline someone who's like not going to mess up. Um, but should mention that he is like a really good shooter shot. I think 42% from three this year um, is comfortable enough putting the ball on the floor where he can, he's not going to just be like a complete um, negative if closed out on. Uh, and he's big. I think he listed at six, six, six and a half ish, six, seven ish. And he's not, he's definitely not that functional of an athlete, but measured like a 40 inch vertical at the combine um, really measured well. So there's there's something there. It's not like he's just a dud. Um, and I think that's important. It, you know, like I said, the 50th pick, you're just trying to get an NBA player and a guy who shoots really well, he's an above-average athlete, um, and, and knows what he's doing on defense. That's like a pretty good bet to make. Yeah, for sure. And it just Wieskamp shot 46% from this year, 41% through three years to Iowa. Uh, and he's a guy that I'm fairly familiar with because he's basically been a prospect you know, on the radar uh, every year. To, I mean, had a really, really awesome freshman year at Iowa and then kind of struggled with just his shot making as a sophomore. Um, shot 34% from three, 49% on twos, and just had just an underwhelming sophomore year, but bounced back as a junior. Um, just you know, much better. 40, 46% from three, like I said, 52% on twos. Uh, first career was 52% from, from two point range in three years. Um, but you mentioned kind of maybe some of the disparity between his athletic testing of the combine and his, you know, maybe his, what he shows on, you know, on tape, kind of the functional athleticism term there. How do you, how do you suss that out? Because I think sometimes people will either lean too far one direction in the sense that, oh, like he, he tested well, but he doesn't show it well. So like, who cares about the testing? Um, or sometimes, oh, he tested well, but like 
like they don't always know what the tape looks like. And so they just lean too far into that. So how do you, how do you use something like that? For, because for me with Wieskamp, when I've watched him, and he's a guy that I, I liked actually, I liked a lot as a freshman. I was really, I was bummed to see him have a disappointing second year. Um, and obviously didn't watch as much of this year, but was always a guy that struck me as a little bit mechanical in kind of his, his approach and also his athletic, my just, just process. So how do you, with a guy like that, what do you make of kind of maybe his, like, is there some, is there some latent ability there that you think could be unlocked with a better like development staff? How do you kind of, you know, parse that and, and analyze it and, and kind of in conjunction with what do you make of Wieskamp's ability to make things happen if he's run off the arc, which I'm sure he will be at times. Yeah, I think um, the biggest hindrance there is he's just slow. Um, sadly, he's not he's not great um, at the first step, and he's not all that um, sort of bursty. Like he he has long strides. It's one of those funny things. I was talking to our, our pal Ben Pfeiffer about this. I forget what our example was, but um, like he looks slower than he is, just in terms of like he's getting to point A to point B in, in a decent pace. Um, but the body isn't moving that fast when it's getting there, um, which obviously doesn't sound relevant. But in terms of like attacking closeouts and things, like he will um, get to the rim, but he's often not with a clear window. Um, mm-hmm. And so there, there's a lot of situations like his his finishing. If you just go through synergy and watch his like finishing clips, I think you'll probably see that um, he sort of struggles to. A lot of his finishes are. First of all, he doesn't. He's not very comfortable finishing with his left, which is a problem. Um, and he will have situations where he goes for those sort of like extension, sort of reach around finishes with his right hand if he's driving right, but it's never like over the top. Um, he'll like decelerate and, and take bumps and sort of fall back to great windows. It's never sort of over the top finishing um, or through guys as much as it is kind of like creating windows by taking a step back. Um, and so that's why it doesn't look that athletic. But he does have moments in space. Like, there's a particular play I'm remembering. I watched their game against Ohio State. There's, like, a play where he breaks up a lob. I think it was Ohio State. He breaks up a lob from the weak side. It's, like, a it's a, um, it's a lob out of a pick and roll, and he comes from the weak side and knocks the ball out of the guy's hands above the rim. Um, and that's where you see, like, oh, he got pretty high on that play. Um, and it's because he had a runway, and he can just take off and, and meet the guy at the highest point as opposed to, like, having to beat him to the highest point. Does that make sense? So that's where I'd say mm-hmm. the, the difference in athleticism comes in um, just because he's not, uh, you know, he's not doing anything where he's beating guys with the speed. It's mostly with pace. And so that leads mm-hmm. to a lot of situations where, you know, it's hard for anybody to be uh, athletic through contact and while getting bumped. And if he's always getting bumped, so it just looks probably a little bit worse than it is when he can, you know, of course the combine run as fast as he can, <laughs> no one within 10 feet of him and jump and touch his highest point. Yeah, that, that makes sense for sure. Uh, and I, I just, just something that always struck me that like, well, not, I mean, it struck me as interesting when I saw his numbers, but then also in conjunction with the film that I uh, on recall, uh, and the other thing I want to ask about we before we shift to Reeves a little bit is obviously he, he played with a, a dominant low post score in Luca Garza for the Sixers were select him. He would spend some minutes alongside another dominant low post score in Joel Embiid. So, what did you make of his kind of synergy and ability to play off of a guy like Garza? How do you think? What, what kind of I guess indicators do you see of his his fit potentially alongside a guy like Joel Embiid at the next level, who is a different sort of post score than than uh, Luca Garza, 
Um, but is, but also is a guy who likes to work from, from 12 to 14 feet in and do a lot of, do a lot of touch. You do a lot of damage with, with long methodical touches. Yeah. So I think I'm, I actually hadn't made that connection until you, um, you DM me about it. And I, I love it because I think it, it's kind of maybe what's happening subconsciously, but like the skills that we camp showed that made him sort of uniquely useful next to Garza would be the same skills. Like you said, that would make him pretty uniquely useful next to someone like, uh, Embiid. And that is, he is a very good cutter. Um, you know, guys like uh, like a Yai and Wieskamp, there, there's cutters who will take cuts when available, but it's always, it's really cool to see guys like them who sort of proactively seek cuts. Like they'll relocate, um, and if someone re- doesn't relocate with them, they know to attack. Or if there's something happening in motion and they know that their guy's preoccupied, they'll take that opportunity to to cuts of the rim and they're both very good at that um this camp in particular is um a very good relocator even uh, i think we like think of i i could be straw manning here but i think generally like when we think about like relocation and shooting off movement we think of like sort of um pretty obvious situations where like uh, you're sort of at kind of where the break is and then a guy drives mm-hmm. in your direction and you re- relocate to the corner and like that's great if you're you know active enough to do that but i think it's um, guys like Wieskamp are especially good in that they will sort of, they won't sit in help windows. Like they, they'll see their guy sort of checking man and ball um, and they will either raise or drop to the direction in which they um, have more space, which is, I think an underrated skill. It helps you get a lot more open shots. And it's a reason that, you know, Wieskamp, you know, like you said, shot 46% on threes with 87% of those coming off assists. That's, that's a pretty gnarly number. Um, and so I think in that way, and also I should mention, Wieskamp did was involved in a good amount of actions with Garza sort of as the offensive hub at the top of the key, in which I think the Sixers like to do with, with Embiid, um, and of course mm-hmm. with Garza in the low post and mid post um, with that cutting and sort of even with sort of, you know, college basketball looks different, but Iowa would run these odd like four man like horns with two guys on the blocks as well <laughs> sets. Um, where we scamp would like shoot up from the block off of a, a high post touch for Garza and either fly into a shot or just basically use his gravity to create uh, an open lane for, for Luka Garza. So it obviously the, the, that won't be happening. Or I, I hope it won't happen because that's a pretty ugly set. Uh, but just in, in theory, the way that he was able to, to leverage shooting and, and off ball awareness to, to, you know, drive attention away from, from a, a post hub, I, I think, a really good point that you make, and sort of how that translates to Embiid. And then before we shift to the Oscars, what what's kind of the swing skill for you with Wieskamp that you know could be the difference between him, you know, just kind of floundering the end of the bench or being you know actual seventh, eighth, ninth, ninth man who clearly has a place in, in a rotation on a good team? Um, I think there's a few. I think he's. Uh... You know, a big pitch for Wieskamp, and I don't want to go on a tangent here, I'll keep it short, but I think a big pitch for Wieskamp is, like, all these guys who um, are sort of sort of draft Twitter favorites now of, like, these biggest shooters, like Trey Murphy and Kessler Edwards, and, um, you know, before they dropped out, guys like like Marcus Bagley, you know, even Quentin Grimes, I think, might might fit that role, Julian Champagny did. Um, like, Wieskamp's a great budget option for that type of prototype, um, or archetype, I should say. Um and so that's an interesting sort of value case there. But I think the the swing skill, there's a few. I mean, I 
he needs to get better finishing for sure. Like it, it just mm-hmm. if you want, if you were to go through watch his finishes from the year, he's never um, really showing creativity. He's going to his right, and if he can get there, he can get there. And if it's not, it's like a very sort of last minute alarm bell problem solving situation. It doesn't always look pretty. Um, and going left, he always likes to do the sort of drive left and plant and fade and shoot with your right, um, which isn't very sustainable. And that would help him a lot. I think if he, um, you know, I think that's, that's probably the first step in terms of like naming a, a pertinent swing skill. And then beyond that, if you were to able to, to leverage shooting gravity into closeouts where you can make sort of passes, he's not a bad passer, but just, I think he's always in, you know, I think it's part of his role, but always looking for his own shot. Um, and maybe, you know, what does it look like if he's getting closed out on attacking downhill and then making reads that probably looks like a different player as well. So I guess those would be the biggest ones. Yeah, for sure. Um, then shifting gears to Austin Reeves, uh, I mentioned when we talked about Jared Butler, maybe the discrepancy between how his biggest, you know, proponents view his shooting, uh, and maybe those who are a little skeptical or just haven't, you know, part, maybe are just curious about why, why he viewed such a high level shooter. Uh, Austin Reeves takes that to an even higher level. Um, you know, shot really well in his role at Wichita State before transferring to Oklahoma for his final two years. Pulling up the number, the splits here quickly um, because they are pretty, pretty stark. Um, as a freshman at Wichita State, 28 of 55 from three, 50.9%. Sophomore, 54 of 127 from 42.5%. And then in two years at Oklahoma, uh, was only at uh, 27.7% on 74 of 267 uh, for four years at 34.7%. Um, and so by no means is me, this is not a criticism, me just explaining why people might be curious about why he's built as a high level shooter. So what, what is to make of that disparity? Is it similar to Butler in that he just took a lot of pull-ups that weren't really his, his ideal thing from three? Why is there such a disparity between who he was at Wichita State versus who he was at Oklahoma as a shooter from three? Yeah. So, um, Butler was maybe grasping his straws a little bit, but just in terms of, I think it is relevant still for Butler's case because, uh, even if the percentages were different and or similar in terms of play type, like I think it just looked a lot different for him just by nature of how much better Davion Mitchell got and how much attention he attracted. Um, Austin Reeves had, um, like I, I actually pulled this up before getting on the call because uh, I knew that it was going to be insane and it was his first. So let's see his freshman year or maybe this is a sophomore year um, shot. His play types and synergy was, uh, 29.6% spot ups, 20.4% uh, as a pick and roll ball handler. His senior year, 42.6% as a pick and roll ball handler, 14.7% <laughs> as isolation, um, 11.9% in spot ups, and 1% off screens. Uh, so really just completely flipped from being like an off ball shooter to being the complete focal point of the offense and having everything coming off of a situation where he was finding himself shots off the dribble. So uh, that is, I would mostly attribute it to that. Um, and I actually, I went back and watched some Wichita State clips before um, hopping on today, just because I was curious. And I would actually say, it, interestingly, his shot looks better just aesthetically now um, than it did at Wichita State. He more, uh, Wichita State had much more of like a, he'd scissor his legs more often. He, um, his fall through was really extended. And now it's just a much more compact, repeatable motion. So while the percentages are awful, I think it's really just attributable to his role because I would say that he's probably, um, if I had to venture to guess, obviously you don't have numbers efficiency-wise to back it up, but if I had to venture, I'd say he's a better shooter is now than he was his, his first two years where he shot far better three-point numbers. 
Yeah, uh, that, that all makes sense. And I think it's just a, just a broad, broadly an important concept is usage affects, affects efficiency, both for better or for worse. Uh, if you're in an optimal role that you know accentuates your strengths offensively, you're going to probably produce pretty good efficiency, assuming you're, you're a very good player. Um, if you're in a suboptimal role, uh, that kind of forces you to overextend you as a creator, overextend you as an off-movement guy, your, your deficiency is going to take a dip. So always important to look at those sort of factors. Um, but broadly with the Reeves, what do you view? Um, I think we did. Did we do a little break? Did we did a little breakdown of each of their skill sets, right? If I recall, did we do that? Yeah. Wanna, yeah. Okay. We've been talking a lot of stuff today. I want to make sure I didn't. Yeah, I didn't no ignore problem. those things. And people on this on the stream or the podcast are just like, I don't even know who off stream or Joe Wees can't bar. You're asking all these <laughs> these minute details of them without even going to the broad perspective. But uh, what what do you see as Reeves' kind of optimal role then in, in this case? If maybe his efficiency was really affected by having to be a lead creator on, on a couple of team, Oklahoma teams that were solid. Um, so what, what's his role? And then similar, guess, similar to that, like in what ways does he create advantage? Because again, I think that is a really, you're not going to get a, like a high level advantage creator at 50 of like, of course that would be a foolish expectation, but I think with the Sixers, everything's going to have to be framed through some sort of lens about how can this guy help simplify our offense? Because they just need, they just need more avenues to, to easy looks. They have a lot of tough shot makers. And, and that was kind of their downfalls when those tough shot makers were hampered or struggled. We you know hampered in Joel Embiid's case with, with a torn meniscus. Tobias Harris guy just couldn't really hit some of the shots. But anyhow, just a little breakdown of what, what role you expect Austin Rivers to thrive in the NBA and then how, how he could help create advantages on, on the Sixers roster. Sure. So um, Reeves, I think is most, uh, as I alluded to most optimized in a situation where he's not the lead ball handler. Um, I think he has very good ancillary skills in terms of his, uh, he has sort of like a giddy ish. That's Josh giddy sort of a, a similar to Josh Giddy approach to ball handling and that he isn't overly creative. He's not Jerry Butler who's throwing out these combos to create space, but he's very good at um, sort of dictating where defenders weight goes and reacting very quickly to it. Um, a lot of his advantages are created by, well, at least in Oklahoma, and this isn't going to be representative, but I think the micro skill translates, um, which is he would do sort of a lot of like very slow methodical, sort of between the legs, crossover, behind-the-back combos. Um, and then once the guy reached, he'd just flip it to the other side. If it was in his right hand, he'd go left. If it was in his left hand, he'd go right. And he'd go downhill from there, um, which I think is just a skill that translates in the sense that he is uh, capable sort of, I guess, getting the most out of his physical profile. He's not overly athletic or quick, um, but creates advantages through those sort of reads of defender tells and reacting appropriately and and turning those those slight over adjustments from a defender into an advantage, um, and I think that's that's a worthwhile skill, especially um, from someone who is six six, like we talked about. I think his size is a big deal, deal here as well. Uh, and I think I alluded to this earlier, but his his path in college provides an interesting sort of developmental case in that his role, his first two years, I guess looks more similar to what it'll be in college. It's sort of that off guard shooting spot-ups and off-movement a bit more. Um, but I do think that there is going to be some um, some worthwhile gains in sort of as a passer and ball handler and decision-maker um, and advantage creator that came from being thrust into this massive role at Oklahoma. Just uh, by virtue of the skills required to succeed in those roles. Um, and it'll be interesting to see kind of as he scales back down what he takes from those two years. Because I do think 
Um, there's just certain things that you, uh, certain skills you gain or improve when you are, are forced to make this giant load of decisions, um, you know, both on the macro scale in terms of like how to play and pick and rolls and how to make passes out of those situations, but also on a micro level of like constantly solving complex problems at the point of attack with the ball in your hands. Um, the defenders constantly sort of, you know, focusing on you. So I think there is um, a, a case where he basically scales back down to that off-ball player, but has more of those sort of on-ball, quote-unquote on-ball skills as a handler and passer that makes him especially interesting. Um, and also, of course, given that he is he is pretty tall. So I think it's an interesting case to, to take basically a, a 6'6 point guard who can shoot and tell him to play off the ball. I think you might be pretty pleased with what the offensive output looks like there. Yeah, so I guess maybe the the best way to frame it you know, succinctly, um, and not that it was at all bad to go in depth, but uh, is that he has some on ball creation, but you want that to just be a feature that it, that isn't relied on for every single thing he does as a as an offensive you know generator, I guess, or producer. Yeah, I mean, and also feel free to to call me rambling because I know I definitely am. <laughs> um, but yeah, just basically that he uh, he meets a creation threshold that is sort of more than what you'd hope for out of like an ancillary wing off the bench, but maybe less than you'd want out of a playmaker off the bench. Yeah. Okay. That, that makes sense for sure. And by all means, rambling is welcomed on here. I, anyone who listens to these streams <laughs> of this podcast is well, well-versed in my rambles. I did a, I did a solo podcast rating Ben Simmons, Joel and Bede's year on Thursday, and I'm sure it was incoherent at times and another solo one. So people are, people are used to it by all means. It, it's totally fine. It's, it's more, more good information than, than uh than less so um but to me to wrap things up about reeves what what do you view as his his skills his his skill swing his swill his, his swing <laughs> skills look at that rambling uh his swing <laughs> skills or just his swing skill you think would really make him a, a viable kind of secondary creator or handler in the nba i think furthering uh those or, or i guess maybe even just parlaying those passing reads I, I should mention despite his massive usage in the pick and roll a lot of those uh, possessions came with shots from him. He's not like a, he's not really that great of a pass out of the pick and roll. Um, mm-hmm. He's good enough um, for sure. But I do think that that might be a swing and skill, just his ability to, to leverage advantages he creates into, into easy passes. Um, and, and being able to, you know, obviously I think the expectations should be tempered here, but if you were to sort of hit an outcome for someone you'd want at the 50th pick, he'd be playing as like the eighth or ninth guy in the regular season. Um, and to do so effectively, I think it'd be a big deal if he could sort of play that off-ball shooter role, um, but be able to, to get downhill and make passes out of that as well, um, just because right now a lot of the advantages come from a lot of dribbles and a lot of uh, a lot of time spent with the ball in your hands, and at the next level, it's not what he's going to be doing. So just being able to be more proactive and, and more decisive in, in capitalizing on advantages, both... Um, on the catch, and then once he creates the advantage, uh, capitalizing with passing. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, that makes sense for sure. So a little bit, a little similar to Jared Butler, obviously a much lesser player, but or prospect, I should say. But uh, and then the one thing I do want to ask you for anyone who's listening to this and wants maybe an even an even deeper look at any of these guys, or wants to watch some stuff for their for themselves to get to get a read from. Are there any games specifically that you recommend for for these four that you think are kind of emblematic of what they could bring? 
uh, or maybe most representative of them, uh, either way that come to mind for you. Know, I'm kind of putting you on the spot, but games that you think are just a good, you know, good representation of of these guys as prospect and potential NBA players. No, it's a great question. Um, and my, my answers, I, I'll be able to give answers, I think, for each, but they might be a little bit lacking. I will say uh, the Butler one that comes to mind, I think the game, and again, this is all from recall, so I might fudge some details, but I believe it's it's either at Kansas State or Kansas State at home um, is a game where he hits a few off-screen threes. He like I believe there's even a sequence where like in a handful of possessions, um, he comes off and curls a screen and hits a three, and then later leverages the gravity generated by the earlier curl into a flare and hits a three in the corner. Um, I might be making some of that up, but I believe that's what happens. And so I go to watch that to give you a window of quarter like what the off-ball magic could look like. Um, Ayayi, let's see. I think at Pepperdine, he has a couple good cuts um, and some good defensive moments. I think the St. Mary's tournament game, he was pretty good, if I recall correctly. And then I think, I forget which game it was in the tournament. There was one game where he had like 24 points, which of course maybe isn't representative, but like you get the best picture of like what the peak might be in terms of like how good he is at certain skills. I forget which game exactly it was. I think it was either he had 22 against UCLA. I don't know if that's yeah. the game. I think it was. Seven and nine from two. He probably. Yeah, I think I recall that game. Um, yeah, yeah. I think that if I recall that one was a really nice, uh, nice game. It was off ball ability. Like, I mean, well, just incredible. I mean, just if you're looking to kill time during during as the NBA playoffs start to wind down, uh, obviously you should you should be watching WNBA. But if you're also looking for other things, uh, go back and watch Usually Like Gonzaga because you will not be disappointed. But uh, <laughs> any games that you recall for Wieskamp or. Or, uh, or Reeves that you think could, could maybe shine a light on, on who they are with, with some film to, to back it up? Yeah, so for Reeves, I would say the Gonzaga game, funny enough, um, because it is, I think it's, it's representative in the sense that he starts with these, this like incredible run of mm-hmm. um, like finishes through contact twice, like two and ones, hitting pull-up threes from with range, um, and then as sort of the game evens out a bit, like I think Oklahoma started like might have been beating him like 29-28, and then the half finishes and Gonzaga's up 12 in like an eight-minute span. So like you get to see both the uh, the highest point of his sort of creation, and then you get to see sort of like how he gets stunted with – he starts settling for a lot of like contested threes and, and like odd off-balance pull-ups. Um, so that's pretty representative if you want to get like a good view of what he looks like um, and his shortcomings. And then Wieskamp um, – God, I wish I had a game log in front of me. I think – I do remember that Ohio State game. Um, I'll actually just pull it up. But I remember – I do like the Ohio State game because of that. Uh, I think he has a few good defensive moments there. Um, I remember Wieskamp was not bad in the tournament. Um, but I know, like, for example, of course, the Oregon game where they lost for, like, 20 wasn't great. Um, and just the tournament – rec- With the Ohio State game, do you recall if it's the one they won or lost? They played them twice. Do you know if it was the one that they – I think it's game, it was one later in the season, so I think it was the game they won. Um, okay. Hold on, yeah, yeah. So log. February twenty eighth would be the one they they won. He had nineteen point seven of thirteen shooting, five yeah. of nine from three. Okay, yeah. Just so just That's... just so people if they want to watch this game if they have access to them. I don't know if anyone I don't know if anyone does always have access to these things, but uh, if you don't have a synergy or an instat, you can always just try and YouTube it as well. Um, just if people do want to get a better read on these these people, I don't know exactly kind of what what my listener demographic is, but I always want to give people more, <laughs> more avenues to, to watch these guys if they become potential Sixers or whatnot. For sure. No. And I think, yeah, that is the game. The, 
the game where they beat Ohio State, he had 19. I believe that is the game where he gets the uh, the sweet block at the rim on the lob, which is a super high IQ athletic play. Um, but yeah, I think that those, I guess, would be the four games I suggest for sure. Cool. Uh, and then similarly, do you have any pieces of writing or film, you know, breakdowns that you you've done or that you've consumed about these four guys that you could maybe direct people to as well, um, you know, for, to get an even greater even greater encapsulation of who these guys are, maybe in the written written or uh, what's the imagery? I'm like, you know, visual, <laughs> written or visual form rather than the audible form. Um, yeah. So I've touched on uh, throughout the college year. Um, I was writing this column weekly column uh, where I touched on like five guys in sort of a, a, uh, you know, a Zach Lowish uh, manner in terms of like, uh, just trying to highlight certain skills from every guy basically I thought was like borderline first round. So I think I got, I covered Ayayi and Butler in each of those. It was called the five point play. If you go to um, the uh, the pro insight perspective, insight.com website and go under PI pulse, there are, um, and actually it might just be easier if once you tweet out this episode, I can just like, and quote tweet it with the links to the specific ones that include Ayayi and Butler. Um, but definitely write about them. I know that our, our pal who I mentioned earlier, Jake Rosen has, written uh, plenty about Jared Butler. I'd definitely recommend checking out what he had to write. I think it was last year's cycle, but a lot of it still applies. Um, and unfortunately, I don't know if I, – I definitely didn't write anything on Reeves or Wieskamp, but I don't know if anyone has. Um, so I don't have anything to suggest there. Uh, but definitely would – I know that I've written about Ayayi and Butler. I know that Jake has written a lot about Butler. Um, and I think – uh, there might be a friend of ours. I don't want to blow up his spot. A friend of ours, I think, is working on something in the future before the draft that will include um, a decent Ayayi section. So I'll, I'll, I'll hint at that, and then once it comes out, we can we can link it to it. Um, but that's what I've got for now. Yeah, for sure. And I think I know Jay recently started doing a lot more draft coverage at the Stepium, but I think this Jared Butler stuff would probably be on his website, uh, yes. JakeInThePaint.com. Uh, which is linked in his bio. If you'd like to follow Jake, you follow him at Jake in the paint. You should definitely do that. He is one of the up and coming uh, people in the NBA draft world. So follow his stuff until he is snatched away by an NBA team, which is probably coming here fairly soon. Uh, that's no source. I'm not reporting anything, but uh, Jake is a very bright mind and has written a lot about Jared Butler, as you said. So uh, I think there also is a Jared Butler scan report in the step in from last year, if I recall, I don't know who wrote it. Um, let me see here. Yeah, let's see. Um, this is from, uh, oh, CJ, CJ uh, March, I want to say Marcusani or Marcusani. I don't want to butcher the last name. I apologize if she's listening to this, but uh, he wrote one of your Butler's kind of report two months ago on the step in nice little 10 minute reads. There's one place to find it. Um, but yeah, I appreciate you, you coming on Henry and I hope for everyone listening, we were insightful uh, and also gave you other ways to follow up and, and find more information about these guys because we can only convey so much in an hour, hour's time. But uh, the floor is yours, Henry. Give yourself a little shout out. We're going to follow you. Where can they find your, your NBA draft coverage? Uh, well, yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on, Jackson. This was this was very fun. I always love love chatting draft with you. I think we we see things uh, very similarly in terms of like what's important and and what's worth focusing on. So it's always fun to talk to uh, to talk to you. Um, I guess I just say follow me on Twitter at Henry W Ward. Uh, two W's there, and then all my writing for the time being can be found uh, with Pro Insight. Um, and that's perspectiveinsight.com and at underscore pro insight on Twitter um, wrote that sort of uh, in, in hindsight, wish I maybe saved a lot of that writing I did throughout the year for the actual draft cycle. Um, 
but you can go back and look at all the stuff I wrote throughout the college season. Um, I think I covered nearly 30 prospects and I think each one got at least sort of 400 to 500 ish words. So definitely recommend checking that out with the, uh, with the five point play columns I wrote, but um, yeah, that's definitely, that's it for now. Cool. Uh, for everyone listening, I'll be back on Tuesday with another guest to break down some more prospects. This is what we're, we got 12 days until the draft and we'll be, we'll be, so I got four or five podcasts again. We'll be breaking down as many prospects as possible. Um, but Henry, appreciate you coming on. Appreciate everyone listening uh, until Tuesday. Uh, stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe. Enjoy the finals or enjoy whatever you're doing during these beautiful summer days. And I will talk to all of you again soon.